Well, good morning, church family. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20 and find verse 19. I'm going to be reading John 20, 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to your word right now wanting to hear your voice. We recognize there are things that we need to learn and we ask that you would teach us. Lord, we know that there are things about you that we need to believe and trust in, so we pray that you would grant us faith. And Lord, it's our desire that we would be conformed into the image of your Son, and so we ask that you would transform us. Lord, we believe that you can do all of these things through your living and active word. We pray by your spirit. We pray in the name of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This message is a message for missionaries. Now, now don't stop the tape if you don't find yourself overseas right now. This, this doesn't mean that you uh, have to be an overseas missionary. In fact, every single believer in Jesus Christ is a missionary. The word uh, missionary comes from the Latin word missio, and that comes right from Jesus' words here in John 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, the Latin is missio, so I am sending, again, missio, as the Father has sent me as a missionary, I am sending you as a missionary. Jesus Christ is a sent one. He was sent by the Father. And every believer in Jesus Christ is also sent. You may never go overseas. You may never write a missionary support letter. You may never give a slideshow to a church on a Wednesday night uh, prayer meeting. But you are a missionary if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Our mission statement as a church is to make disciples of all nations. And that's quoting Matthew chapter 28, which says, go, Jesus is sending us. We are called to be missionaries, to go and to make disciples. That's the great commission, and we're to do it in the spirit of the great commandment, which is loving God and loving our neighbor. And so this passage here, as, as we look back on Easter and as we look forward to what God has in store for us as individuals and as a church at large, it's time for us to reset the missionary mindset that we understand that wherever we are right now, God has sent us and is sending us so that we would reach people with the good news 
of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus rose from the dead, the the thing he wanted to impress upon his disciples was that he was sending them to go and to make disciples. And in this brief passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus make four statements that are true about us that will help reinforce this missionary mentality that all of us need to have. The first one is this, is that we have received his peace. We have received his peace. It says in verse 19 that this all happened on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. This is still Resurrection Sunday. We've had seven days between Mary Magdalene and Jesus appearing to her, but but this is all happening in a matter of hours. On the very same day, the evening of that day, it says that the disciples are in a room and the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. This isn't speaking of Jews in general. It's, it's, a, it's shorthand for the Jewish leaders. The disciples were Jewish themselves. So when John says the Jews, he's talking about the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the, and the chief priests who put Christ on the cross. And they're afraid of them. They're afraid of them because, because not all of them believe what Mary Magdalene had said at this point. Some of them think that Jesus' body has been stolen by these very leaders, and they think that they're going to come looking for them Next, And so they are afraid. And this is when Jesus comes to them. He enters into a room where the doors are locked. This is some sort of miraculous appearance. Now, Jesus is not a ghost or a spirit. He ate and people reached out and touched him. And yet Jesus, in this new glorious resurrected body, is able to appear and disappear. And Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus disappeared as soon as the disciples realized who he was. And then in, later on, in seven verses later, he, he appears again to a group of disciples. You see, this is not simply the reanimation of a corpse. No, this is a glorious resurrection body that Jesus has. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the same way that we are 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 similar to the man of dust, the first Adam. We, we have this flesh and blood just like the first human being created. We also will become like the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, the one who was risen from the dead and given a new resurrection body. And this is our hope as well. So the things that limit us physically no longer limit the resurrected Jesus Christ. And this is what we look forward to. So Jesus comes to these fearful disciples in this locked room, appears to them in this miraculous way, and he speaks peace to them. Verse 19 says, peace be with you. In the Greek, it's just one word. He just simply speaks peace. He spoke peace to them. We already know that they're afraid. I think that his his statement of peace was to put their minds at ease in terms of how afraid they were at the time. I also think that his statement of peace dealt with the guilt that they would have been experiencing, that they would have felt because all of them had run. They were all scattered when Christ was was arrested. Even as Christ predicted, the, the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. So they felt ashamed. They felt guilty. And yet Jesus comes in the midst of their fear and he says, peace. And in the midst of their guilt and he says, peace. Maybe you're struggling with fear these days. 
Maybe as you think about this this virus, maybe when you are, maybe you think about loved ones who are sick, or you're afraid that you're going to get sick yourself. Maybe you are struck with fear right now. Jesus speaks peace into your life. Maybe you're overwhelmed with guilt. Maybe all of the stress of the last four or five weeks has caused you to lapse into old patterns of behavior, whether it be in anger or or lust or despair, whatever it may be, and you feel far from God. You feel like you have turned away from him, just like the disciples felt. You need to know that Jesus has come to you and he is speaking peace, peace for your fear and peace for your guilt. And as soon as he... He spoke that word of peace. He showed them something. He showed them his hands and he showed them his side. He showed them his scars. You see, his scars speak to our fears. The the most common fear that all of us have is the fear of death. That's what the disciples were afraid of. They were afraid that the Jewish leaders were going to come and do the same to them that they had done to Jesus. But Jesus comes and he is risen from the dead. He shows them the scars and he says, yes, what I went through was awful. It was agonizing. It was excruciating, but I survived. I am resurrected. And no matter what this world throws at us, we can look at the scars of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus suffered and died and was risen from the dead. So no matter what we face, even as Christians, we can look death in the face and have peace because of the scars of Jesus Christ. And even when it comes to our guilt, Jesus could look at those disciples and tell them to look at his hands, to look at his side, to look at his scars. When they feel ashamed, when they're overcome with guilt and a sense of condemnation for the way that they had failed Jesus, Jesus points to the scars and say, I paid the price that you deserve for your cowardice and for your selfishness and for your pride. I paid the penalty for your sin. Look at my scars. And so when we feel overwhelmed by our guilt, when we are consumed with shame and feel condemned, we look at the scars of Jesus Christ and know that he has paid the penalty that we deserve for our sin. So we don't need to have fear. We don't need to have guilt. Romans 5 uh, verse 1 says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke peace to us. So if you're struggling with fear, if you're struggling with guilt, look at the scars of Jesus Christ. I love how Matthew Bridges' classic hymn sums this up. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. There's only one man-made thing in heaven, and it's the wounds of Jesus Christ. On the throne is the lamb standing as slain. Revelation 5, 11 and 12 tells us, look to his scars. We can find peace when we're overwhelmed with fear or with guilt. Jesus had already promised his disciples a peace. In John 14, 27, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He told them in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. 
But take heart, I have overcome the world. There may be wounds, there may be scars in our past, they may be coming in our future, but Christ has overcome and his scars approve that. This is the hope that we have. And so when the disciples saw the scars, when they saw Jesus, when they heard him speak this word of peace, it says at the end of verse 19, then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Again, this was something that Jesus had promised to them. He promised them peace. He also promised them joy. In John 16, verses 20 to 23, he said, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus promised joy. That word glad, the disciples were glad. That's the same word. They were filled with joy just as Jesus had promised. They had experienced sorrow and now they were experiencing immeasurable joy. Then look with me at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He wants to make this abundantly clear. He wants them to know that he has brought them a peace. He wants them to be at ease. He wants them to experience his peace because he's sending them on a mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You see, this incredible feeling of peace, this incredible assurance that we have that we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear anything because we have Jesus and we don't need to feel condemned and we don't need to feel guilty or ashamed because our sins have been forgiven. This is a message that we have and that Jesus wants us to tell the world. He is sending us a world that is filled with fear, a world, a world that is feel, filled with, with shame and with guilt. Jesus is sending us to a world that is longing for him. So we have received his peace. Secondly, make note of this. We are sent on mission. We are sent on mission. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus came in the name of the Father, and so we go in the name of Jesus. Jesus talks about being sent over 30 times in the Gospel of John. He was continually referring, defining his identity and his purpose in light of his mission, that the Father had sent him to, to seek and to save the lost. He, he was sent to speak the words of the Father, to perform the works of the Father, to show the love of the Father, to fulfill the mission the Father had given him. And Jesus is telling his disciples, I am sending you in that same way. Jesus said earlier in John chapter 17, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, he's praying to the Father. He says, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. So Jesus wants us to be on mission. We are missionaries. To be a Christian is to be sent, to bring this message to as many as we can Reach. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, Ted, uh, okay, I guess I am a missionary. I never really thought about myself like that. But right now we're under quarantine. And how can I go and make disciples under social distancing? How can I go and tell when I'm supposed to shelter in, in place? So listen, this is not a message that we're just supposed to store away for the future. This is something that is true of us right now. Jesus has sent us. 
He has sent us to, to be living in the neighborhoods where we are living in. He has sent us to have the social media friends and followers that, that we have. He has sent us to these places to have an influence and an impact on these people. How can we be faithful in fulfilling our mission at this unique season in light of COVID-19? Well, here's a couple of ways that you can uh, think about this. Understand our mission statement is to go and to make disciples. So we can't necessarily go physically, but we can still reach out to people. Also remember that the second half of our mission statement is to love God and to love our neighbor. So how can you love your neighbor? Maybe you could write them a, a, a quick handwritten note and slip it into their a mailbox, just letting them know that you're there for them, saying, if you need anything, here's my phone number. I'm praying for you. Maybe add a couple of extra essential items to your, to your grocery list this week and drop them off at your neighbor's houses as an expression of your care and your love for them. If you find yourself out on your front porch and your neighbors are walking by, linger a little longer in the conversation. Ask them how they are doing. Look them in the eye. Show them that you care. And pray that God would give you opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We are all sent and we are all commissioned to go and to make a disciples. And this is a unique opportunity for us to bring this message uh, to the people within our sphere of influence. And this is a, a difficult task. Jesus is telling us to go and to reach the world. He's telling his disciples to go and reach the world. The very world that just put their Savior on a cross. It's not exactly the most popular message. It's going to be difficult. Hence the rep repetition of the phrase, peace be with you. But Jesus hasn't left us on our own in this task. He says in verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So thirdly, make note of this. We are filled with his spirit. We are filled with his spirit. Notice how he breathed. The, the breath of Jesus is, is significant here. We talked last week at Easter about different pictures and, and patterns and, and prophecies about Jesus and about his resurrection and about this sort of new creation idea. All of the, the, the burial, the resurrection, how it all took place in, in a tomb, in a, in a, in a garden. And the creation started in a in a garden, the first man, Adam, was put into a garden. And now Jesus, the first one with this glorious resurrected body, is in a garden. And in Genesis chapter 2, the, the, the narrator describes how God, after forming the first Adam out of dust, he breathed into him the breath of life. It's the exact same word and grammatical construction as it's used here. When Jesus, the second Adam, the man from heaven, breathes on his disciples so as to, to make them part of this new 
creation. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. We have a, another a prophecy or a prediction of this in Ezekiel chapter 37, where the prophet Ezekiel is in a, in a, a wasteland and it's full of bones and, and dry bones at that. And God tells Ezekiel to prophesy by breathing. Again, same word, same grammatical uh, construction. And Ezekiel breathes and he has a vision of these bones coming to life. It's all a beautiful picture, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the, to the prophecy in Ezekiel 37, Jesus breathing new life into his disciples. He tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit is kind of like, like, like the apex of Jesus' ministry. He talked about it all the time. This incredible gift that he kept promising, that he kept saying that was, that, that was going to come. John the Baptist mentioned it in chapter 1 verse 33 saying that when Jesus comes, he will baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. In John 7, Jesus said that out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. And he said, he said that speaking about the Spirit. In John chapter 16, when he's alone with his disciples and, and the reality of what's going to happen to Jesus is beginning to set in, Jesus actually tells them, no, 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 it's to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, I'll be able to send you the Spirit. And so Jesus wants his disciples to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He wants them to understand that as he breathes on them, that, that the, the promise is being fulfilled, that the Spirit is coming and he's going to be with them. Now, we don't talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit in the church today. I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about the broader church. And we would need to make sure that we have a strong theology of the Holy Spirit, that we understand who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. What is his role? So firstly, the Holy Spirit is God. We need to know who he is. He is God. He's called the Spirit of God in Romans 8 verse 9. He's considered equal to the Father in Matthew 28, 19 and 20 in Acts 5 verse 3 and 4. He was present at creation, Genesis 1 verse 2. He is eternal, Hebrews 9 verse 14. He's omnipresent, Psalm 139 verse 7 to 10. And he's omniscient. He knows all things 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10. The Holy Spirit is God. He is a member of the Trinity. There is one God in three persons. Speaking of persons, that's something else we need to emphasize. That the Holy Spirit is a person. He has a will. He makes decisions. Acts 15 verse 28. Acts 16, 6 and 7. He speaks. Acts 8 verse 29 and 13 verse 2. He teaches. John 14, 26 and 1 Corinthians 2, 13. He can even grieve. Ephesians 4 verse 30. And he makes decisions in distributing the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He is God. He is a person. And then thirdly, we need to understand what does the Holy Spirit do? There's no hope for living the Christian life without understanding the role that the Holy Spirit plays inside the life of a believer. Firstly, he initiates regeneration. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 
3, he facilitates our sanctification, which is growing more like Jesus, the process of becoming holy. Romans 8, verse 13, he inspired the Bible and illuminates the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, and John 16, verse 13. He enables us to relate to the Father as children. It's by him that we cry out, Abba, Father, Romans 8 and Galatians chapter 4. He helps us when we pray to God our Father, Jude verse 20, Ephesians 6, 18, Romans 8, 26. He bears fruit in us, Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. He gifts us for ministry, as I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 12, and he empowers us to be witnesses as we are sent, Acts chapter 1, verse 18. So Jesus breathes on his disciples, says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you who are familiar with how the story of the Bible unfolds, you're thinking, didn't the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost? Wasn't this something that happened 50 days uh, later? How is it that Jesus gave the disciples his spirit now, the, the very day that he rose from the dead. Well, we need, we need to look at this verse in the, in the context of the Gospel of John. You see, Jesus has this habit of talking about future events as though they were already happening. We had, we had already uh, mentioned how he had talked about sending his disciples as early as chapter 17, verse 18, but now he's truly ascending them. He had already told them that he had given them peace in, in John 14, verse 27, and John 16, verse 30, but now in verse 20, he's really telling them that they have peace. The clearest example of this is the, the idea of Jesus talking about his hour. All throughout the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John, Jesus kept saying, my hour has not yet come, or people wanted to arrest him, but his hour hadn't come. But then in John 12, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey and the people say, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus then says, no, now my hour has come. That was on Palm Sunday. But his hour really didn't start until he was crucified on Good Friday. There's a five-day gap between when Jesus said his hour had come, and yet his crucifixion was still five days away. His, his resurrection was three days after that, and his ascension, which is all part of his glory, happened multiple weeks after that. And yet Jesus said the hour had come. And so when Jesus is saying, receive the Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit had not come in his fullness at that particular point in time. You see, the breath of Jesus in this moment, it was kind of like the trailer for the movie. Pentecost was like the whole movie. The breath was like the trailer. You see, Jesus breathes here, but at Pentecost, there's going to be a mighty rushing wind. And so Jesus is giving a, a, a Pentecostal preview, a, a symbolic prophetic promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And if we are going to be faithful as missionaries, loved ones, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us as we are sent as witnesses. It is the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit that gives us peace, Galatians 5, a 22 and so Jesus wanted to emphasize the importance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers when he was resurrected. So we understand that we have received his peace, 
that we are sent on mission, that we are filled with his spirit, and then lastly, that we offer his forgiveness. And I want you to listen really carefully because this last verse is one that has been horribly misunderstood and misinterpreted and misapplied um, in, in particular uh, denominations and branches of, of the Christian uh, church. And so listen carefully to what Jesus says here. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that the apostles or that all Christians have the right to say uh, that a a, a person is forgiven? Do do they have the the right to to forgive someone else on behalf of, of God? Well, we need to pay attention to what the text says and read it in its context. The idea here is that the disciples have been given peace. They've been sent on a mission. They've been empowered with the Holy Spirit to do what? to preach the gospel, to tell the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. And you can't forgive someone on behalf of another person. If my next door neighbor got got burglarized, if thieves came in and stole a whole bunch of their stuff, and then later on I run into the neighbors, or I run into the thieves, and they got a van full of my neighbor's stuff, I can't say on behalf of my neighbor, you know what? You're forgiven. You don't need to return that things. We're we're not going to uh, involve the police. You just keep it. You're forgiven. There's no problem. I have no right to do that because the, the property is not mine. It belongs to my neighbor. I can say you're forgiven all I want, but it's, it's the neighbor's decision. It, it, it's, it's their property. They are the ones who have been offended. And so they are the ones who can only grant that kind of forgiveness. You see, only God can provide forgiveness of sins because all sin is a sin against God. David nailed it in Psalm 51 when he said, against you and you only have I sinned. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he sinned against his nation and the way that he conducted himself. But he understood that at the root of every sin is an offense against a holy God. Only God can forgive. The Pharisees got a lot wrong. I mean, I'm not one to quote Pharisees from the Gospels, but they got one thing right. When Jesus looked at the paralyzed man and said, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees questioned among themselves and said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, in forgiving sins, was showing that he, in fact, was God. So it can't be saying here that we have somehow the authority to forgive people's sins on behalf of God. No, what we are doing is we are explaining to people the gospel, offering to them the forgiveness that God has made available through his son, Jesus Christ. So the context is is in preaching the gospel. So if you share the gospel with a family member or a coworker or a friend and you review with them who God is and what sin is and why Jesus came and the cross and the resurrection and repentance and faith and if they choose to believe and they place their faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. And then if they ask you, am I forgiven? Has God really forgiven me? We can say, as Jesus is outlining here, we can say, yes, 
You are forgiven based off repentance and faith. Again, only God knows the heart. But what Jesus is saying here is that we have the opportunity to share the message of forgiveness. And we can tell people how the gospel can work in their lives. Jesus said in John 13 verse 20, Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus has sent us. And we share his message. And as that message is being received, as that message of forgiveness is being received, as they receive it from us, it's as though they are receiving it from Jesus. He makes his appeal through us. We are his ambassadors entrusted with this glorious and beautiful message of forgiveness that we can be rightfully restored in a relationship with God. And this, loved ones, is what we have the privilege of sharing as missionaries. Notice the role of the Trinity here in verse 21. Jesus is speaking, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You have the Father and the Son. And then he says in verse 22, receive the Holy Spirit. God is a triune God. And God has eternally pre-existed in this context of a loving relationship. And we are invited into that relationship to know this God, to know the Father, to know the Son, to know the Spirit. And we have been given the privilege of inviting others to know the triune God. The Father sent the Son, the Son descending us, the Son has sent us the Spirit so that we could go and share this incredible message that we can worship and delight in this glorious triune God and thank Him for the privilege of being sent to share His message. So let's spend some time worshiping now. Let's sing this simple song together, worshiping the triune God, laying our lives before the Father, the Son, the Spirit, three in one, that we would yield ourselves out of love for God to be used as missionaries in his service. Let's sing this now.